0: Friends, we begin a new sermon series this morning, and our key text today will be Psalm 85. But uh, don't turn there to begin with, turn to Numbers chapter 16 to begin with. Our sermon series, Revive Us Again, is a survey of Old Testament revivals. And of the uh, 11 or so Sundays between now and when we start talking about Christmas, yes, Christmas is coming, um, I'm only going to get to preach seven of them. Two of them, I'll be out of town. Two of them, we'll have special guest, Eddie Halleck, in a few weeks, and uh, then a creation speaker in the end of October, and we'll have more about that published as we get closer. But of these seven sermons I get to preach, I want us to focus on revival. And if you're in um, Numbers 16 now, let's, uh, I'm not going to ask you to stand, because I'm going to just walk right through it, illustrating and introducing us to this idea of revival, it says, Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab and, son, uh, and On, son of Pelath, became insolent. So Korah and Dathan and Abiram. Korah was a Levite. He was a priest. He was set aside by God to lead the people in worship. But then two cohorts with him in leadership were Dathan and Abiram, and my NIV says, became insolent. And notice it goes on to explain some of what that means in verse 2. And they rose up against Moses. With them were 250 men, well-known community leaders, who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron, and they said to him, You've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourself above the Lord's assembly? Do you see what's happening here? God had put Moses as his appointed leader to take his people out of Egypt and lead them to the promised land. Because of their rebellion, they were then taking laps around the wilderness until that wicked generation were to pass away. And in the midst of those laps around the wilderness, the wickedness comes up again. And these three men, leading a cohort of 250 more, are seeking to lead a rebellion and insurrection against Moses, God's leader, and Aaron, his spokesman and the leader of the priests. Verse 4, When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all his followers, In the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy. And we have that person come near him. The man he chooses will cause to come near him. And he gives him instructions on what to do. And if you were to read in verses 8 through 11, he's trying to reason with Korah. If you read in verses 12 through 14, he's trying to reason with Dathan and Abiram, and they argue back with him. And then it says in verse 15 that Moses became very angry. He was disturbed. God had put a certain order about things. And I don't think this had anything to do with Moses protecting his prediction or or position and his authority, but that he knew these men were rebelling not against him, Moses, but against God. And it says Moses then cried out to God again. Then he appealed to Korah again in verse 16 and tells him, tomorrow morning you've got to show up, bring your censers, bring your um, um, you know, fire with you, and we're going to see what happens. Verse 22, But Moses and Aaron fell, fell face down and cried out, O oh God, O oh God, the spirits of all mankind, will you be angry with this entire assembly when only one man sins? Moses and Aaron realized that this is a grievous sin. To come against God's sovereignty, his authority, his plan. And the Lord says to him, verse 24, say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. What happened next is miraculous. That as the people of Israel moved away from the tents of these three rebellious men, the ground opened up and the entire tents of those three rebellious men, presumptively, including their entire family, were swallowed up in the ground and they were killed. We don't often hear things like that. That sounds strange to our ears because we don't see supernatural things happen. But what we saw happen there, and I ran over it very quickly in number 16, is God saying, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And because you've gone against my order, I'm going to be very swift and very firm in exercising my righteousness to remind you that I have a plan and my sovereignty is in charge, not your ideas. Now, all of us at times have messed up, all of us have sinned. And the question would be: once we've messed up, are we done forever? Once we've failed, is there never another opportunity? Once you've hurt someone, is there never forgiveness? Once you've sinned against God, is there never any more grace? And the answer is no, 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 and no. Even in God's uh, sovereignty, even in His righteousness, He loves us. And though there are consequences for our actions, and though God will judge us for our sinfulness, and He will hold us accountable for our rebellion against Him, He holds out to us mercy, and He gives to us grace, and He hears our cries for Him. What is revival? Is a question. You might write down 2 Corinthians 7.14 on your outline. 2 Corinthians 7.14 is a biblical definition of revival. It's as if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, that's repentance, from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their lands. God tells us exactly what revival is and He tells us exactly how to get to revival. And He demonstrates His grace there. We need revival when believers are in a state of decline. When our churches have become feeble and mediocre. We need to see an extraordinary work of God. An enlivening of the spiritual life of members of the church. A new vitality. A fresh wind of the Holy Spirit blowing across a spiritual body. Acts 3.19 says that revival comes as times of refreshing from the Lord. That there is newness and new life and new spirit. And so you might ask the question, why do we need revival? Why do we need to spend seven sermons talking about this idea of revive us again? And I would simply say, friends, look around our world today. Look at our world. Look at our nation. Look at our church. We need a fresh touch of the Spirit of God. We need a renewed view of our sinfulness and God's sovereignty, and a new hunger and thirst for his righteousness. Our scripture memory verse for the month is part of our sermon today, and it's a plea to God, and let's say it together. Psalm 85 4. Now restore us again, O God, of our salvation. Put aside your anger against us once more. Psalm 85 4. Let's pray. God, our Father, we just voiced a prayer to you, a prayer that was written millennia ago by the sons of Korah and asking you for restoration, asking you for revival and proclaiming that you are the God of our salvation and we are your people. But we pray, God, that you would put aside your anger against us as individuals and as a church as a nation, as a world, that as believers in Jesus, we would turn to you afresh and that you would fill us with your love and by your Holy Spirit in such a way that we are grace and we are mercy and people know you through us because your spirit is so present among us. Father, we pray as we enter into this study today of Psalm 85 and a look at Numbers 16 that you would speak to us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So now turn to Psalm 85. You may be there already. And you'll see why I started this by means of introduction in Numbers 16. Your Bible is like my Bible. It has a title in it that comes after the heading, Psalm 85, but before verse 1, right? Mine is in a smaller font. And it says, For the director of music of the sons of Korah, a psalm. So these titles are written in the original Hebrew. Um, Editors didn't go back and take a guess and throw them in later. It's in Scripture. But these titles, you know, set them apart from the Scripture, and so why is it important then that we understand this one for the director of music of the Sons of Korah, a psalm? Well, many of you know what Exodus twenty-four says. Exodus chapter twenty, verse four says that God will visit, that God will visit the sins or punishment of the fathers onto the third and fourth generation of their children. And many of you as parents, that brings you pause at the way that you have lived your life. And then when you see your children go a certain way, you've asked yourself maybe, is this my fault? But that same God says in Deuteronomy 24, 16, bringing balance to that, that the father will not be put to death for the sins of his children and vice versa. So even though God says it can be that those sins are visited on the third and fourth generation of the children, it, he also says it doesn't always have to be. That there is God's grace and there is God's mercy in there and His sovereignty determine how it comes out. And the marvelous grace of God will not hold against the descendants what their forefathers have done. If you were to read in Second Chronicles twenty nine or twenty nineteen, you would see that the Korahites, the sons of Korah, stood alongside the Levites in leading worship for the people. If you were to look back in your Bibles in Psalm 42 through 49 and look in Psalm 84 and 85 and Psalm 87 and 88, you would see that all of those Psalms are titled, Of the Sons of Korah. What am I trying to show you by talking about Korah and taking you to Numbers and talking about this? I'm trying to show you that though Korah committed a grievous sin and though he and his followers were swallowed up in the earth judged for their sin, God showed grace to his sons, his grandsons, his great-grandsons, his descendants. And God not only showed grace just letting them live, but he let them then lead in worship of his people. And he let them lead, lead in worship in such a way that we, even today, have the words of the sons of Korah right here in the book of Psalms. Do you not see hope for revival That even though there may be sin, there is forgiveness. And that God is at work. I want to read from Psalm 85, verses 1 through 3. It says, You showed favor to your land, O Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the Lord God, not the Lord Jesus. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. Selah is a musical pause. Verse three, you set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. The first point on your outline is this. The first point on your outline is a request to forgive us as before. Forgive us as before. The sons of Korah are writing this psalm, this hymn of worship. It's a lament, is what it's called. So it's crying out to God when they're in a jam. And they're saying to God, God, you forgave us before. Will you forgive us again? Notice what it says there. You restored our fortunes, you brought us back from captivity. In the past, when we Sinned, we were judged, and we had the consequences of our sins, God. But you are ever-merciful, God, and you gave us this land, God. Will you restore us in this, your land, God? You've got a question there. And that question is, why do we need forgiven? Why do we need forgiven? So I'm going to give you a second to write that down, and then I'm going to say this. Um, duh. I mean, why do we need forgiven, right? Well, because we sin, we are sin machines. We cannot keep from sinning that some of us are better than others. Yes, in the balance, but all of us are sinners. And Scripture says in James 2.10, if we've kept all the commandments, but broken just one of them, it's as if we've broken all of them, that we are sinners and we need a savior. The better question may be, why do we sin? Well, it may be because we're careless. It may be because we're ignorant. It may be because we're selfish. It may be because we're prideful. It may be because we're fearful. It may be because we're hateful. Cheaply. Look at verse Maybe because we know God's going to forgive us, so we treat His grace cheaply. Look at verse 2. Forgive the iniquity of your people and cover all their sins. God, at any time could bring judgment just as he did with Korah and Dathan and Abiram. But God does not bear his arm of judgment in that way in his mercy. And we don't see that these days. And maybe that's why we've become so callous and so easily sinful. But God doesn't just cover over sins. It says, set aside all your wrath and turn from your fierce anger. I had a roommate in college that was quite a sloppy guy. I, I, I won't begin to tell you um, how sloppy he was, but one thing he would do was literally just pull back his comforter over his sheet and his blanket, you know, and that was making the bed. Make sure the pillow's kind of at the head of the bed and just kind of go, woof, with the big heavy comforter that he had on his bed. But when you looked at his bed, you could tell the blanket and the sheet were under there, Right? And if you tried to sit on it as a seat, you're whoa, hey, that's not sitting quite right. I gotta move over here and sit because there's something under there. I mean, there were times when he would have books under there and you know, all kinds of things, but he God's not covering over sin like that. He's not just going and you still see the lumps and contours. When God forgives, something different happens. That's what verse three says. You set aside your wrath and you turned away your fierce anger. In other words, we're completely forgiven, not just covered over. And that answers the question maybe that I'm going for next. Your second question there is, how does God forgive us? How does God forgive us? And the answer to that is completely The scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, so God has forgiven us. 1 John 1.9, you ought to write that one down. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. There's no more lumps under your comforter. When God forgives you, it's perfect. It's right. You're redeemed. You're restored. You could even be revived. Let's look at our next four verses. Verse four, restore us again, O God, our Savior. Put away your displeasure toward us. Verse five, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you revive us again that you, your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. You see, the psalmists here are getting bolder They've said, we remember what you did in the past, verses 1, 2, and 3, God. We know you forgave us in the past, verses 1, 2, and 3, God. And so now we're making a new request to you, God, and we're emboldened in our request. And that request, and it's your second point in your outline, is revive us in love. Revive us in love. That because you love us, God, and because your love is perfect, because your love is unfailing, we need you to revive us. But friends, spiritual growth cannot exist where there's unconfessed sin. You might want to write that one down. Spiritual growth cannot exist where there's unconfessed sin. Only when we are revived, only when we are restored, because we repent and turn from our sins, can new life and new blessing truly flow through us. Charles Spurden said, To turn a hardened heart to God may be as difficult as, is making the world turn. I remember as a child being absolutely amazed at the Superman movie on the big screen. Yes, I I watched the reruns, you know, the black and white guy with the big puffed-up chest and the perfect hair uh, when I was a little kid. But then what year was it that it came out? 1970-something, 1980, you know, with um, Christopher Reeve playing Superman, and he had that perfect hair. You know, he had the puffed-up chest too. But then the one point in the movie where Lois Lane is killed, and Superman goes out into outer space and flies backwards against the, uni- or against the Earth to actually turn the Earth's axis backwards to turn back time so he can go and rescue his one true love, Lois Lane. And I just remember watching that going, wow! Everything else Superman did in the movie was kind of cool, but the fact that he could fly that Earth and turn the whole world backwards, wow! Wow! And all of us have people in our lives that we think, what's it going to take for them to see Jesus? What's it going to take for them to let down their pride, let down their fear, and confess their sinfulness, and trust Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and their life would be changed as if it was turning one way, and it began to turn a new way on its axis. We need Superman to fly backwards around somebody's life and change their heart, don't we? But we got better than Superman, amen? We got Jesus. And God has that same sort of power to bring revival. Restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your pleasure. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? These are the guys that knew about anger in generations. Their forefather was swallowed up in the earth because of his sinfulness. And they know God doesn't hold his anger to subsequent generations. Will you revive us again? Restore uh, that your people may rejoice in you, God, we want to follow you. Two point, or the uh, second, first question there is, how does restoration look? 'm not going to have time to dwell on this, but just ask the question: how does restoration look? that there 's rejoicing, that there 's a restored relationship. That we see God's unfailing love. Your next question there says, What should our response be? When God revives us, when God brings restoration, what should our response be? They said it there already that your people may rejoice in you. We should have joy. Verses 8 and 9 are a hinge, a transition in this passage of Scripture. Verses 8 and 9 say, I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to His people, His saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely His salvation is near those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land. Your third point on your outline is a request to guard us from sin. It's the psalmist saying, God, we've turned back to you. We've asked you to revive revive us in love. We have repented and we feel restored. But we need to ask you to guard us from future sin. And how are we guarded from future sin? Look at what verse 8 says. I will listen to what God the Lord says. In other words, I will obey His word. Do you know that in the Hebrew, that word listen has the connotation of obey? It's not listen and disobey. It's not listen and carry on in your sin. It's not listen and do nothing. It is listen and do what God says. So your question there asks, how do we find peace and life? All of us want peace, right? Look at the second phrase of verse 8. But he promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Look at verse 8 in your Bibles. There's three parts to it. I will listen to what the Lord God says. He promises peace to His people, but let them not return to their folly. So that middle part, promises peace to His people, is a sandwich, right? What's the bread on the sides of the sandwich? Listening to God, that's obedience. And not returning to our folly, that's humility. That is wisdom. That is righteousness. So what this scripture is saying, verse 8, it's telling us if we want to find peace in life, that we need to obey God's word, and we need to seek God's wisdom, and we need to live by those things, and then we're going to have peace. That doesn't mean that other people won't bring trouble. That doesn't mean we won't have trouble. But in the midst of those things, we can have peace. You've got a second question there. And that second question is, what is the source of God's glory? What's the source of God's glory? That's in verse 9. Surely His salvation is near those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land. Surely His salvation is near those who fear Him. Where does God's salvation come from for us? One word. One name. Tell me. Jesus. Jesus thank you. we got one enthusiastic Jesus over there. The rest of you are asleep. <laughs> salvation comes through Jesus that his glory may dwell in our land. In other words, for us on this side of the cross, not Korah and his followers on the other side of the cross, our salvation and the glory of God comes to us through Jesus. So when I ask the question, what's the source of God's glory that's going to guard us from sin? How do we find peace in life that's going to guard us from sin? It is through Jesus. It is by his word. How do you spend time with Jesus? His word in prayer, serving him, exercising your gifts. This is where we see God at work in us. Let's get our last four verses, verse 10. Love and faithfulness meet together, righteousness and peace kiss each other. What a beautiful picture. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth. And righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good. And our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before Him. And prepares the way for His steps. Your fourth point on your outline is a request to God. Bless us with goodness. The psalmist has believed that God is bringing restoration. That God will, in fact, revive his people and that his people will seek to guard themselves against further sin with the help of God and his word and his savior. And the psalmist is now looking to the future and saying, God, I know you're going to bless me. This picture of love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. I went away to Africa for a couple years um, straight after college. And while I was gone, my mom and dad started going to a vacation home owned by a friend. And it was up in the mountains of south central New Mexico. And you think of New Mexico as this desert place, right, with rocks and sand and nothing really good to look at there. And if you fly in like we did to El Paso, they had been a few years previous, but it was my first time to go. In the summer of 1995, we fly into El Paso and it's rocks and dirt. And you're like, oh my gosh, how could anybody live here? And then you drive up through central New Mexico, rocks and dirt and scrubby trees. And then you're down in Alamogordo and it's like 110 degrees. And you're like, Um, you know, and the white sands are there, which is really cool. And the Air Force Base, so there's Air Force planes flying around and that's kind of cool. But then you get in your car and you start to drive up the mountains in south central New Mexico. And you get to a town called Cloudcroft. And everything is turned green along the way. And maybe there's some snow hiding here and there and some creeks coming down. I mean, it's like a different world in a one-hour drive, right? You left 110 degrees and nothing growing except some cactuses. And you go up there and all this green is everywhere. And then we're driving along this little road and dad says, Oh, here's our first spring. Let's stop and get a drink. I mean, I'm a city boy. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, this water is pure. It's right out of the mountainside. See, it's got a tap on it, so you can fill up a water bottle. Come on, Dad says. And my dad, like a little kid, gets out of the car and gets over there and just starts lapping that water. And he goes, whoa, my fingers are cold. I'm like, what? He says, come here, try it. It's pure. You won't get sick. And I came over and I went, wow, that water is cold. Are you sure this water is good to drink, Dad? Are you sure I'm not going to end up in the bathroom later with tummy trouble? He says, no, really, it's okay. I took a drink. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Like the coldest ice water I've ever had. And it comes from behind these trees up in this mountain. I don't know how that works, but it's pretty cool, God. If you've ever been to a spring and seen it welling up out of something, you... See the answer to that question, your first question there. What is God's faithfulness? God's faithfulness is like a spring. It comes out where you don't expect it, but it's pure. It's holy. And you just want to suck it in. You want to drink it in. You want to live there because it is so perfect. You've got another question there. Your last question on your outline today. And that is, what does God's righteousness do? Verse 13 answers that for us. It's talking about the person who has been revived, the person who has followed God. And it says in verse 12, the Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. In other words, God's going to provide for us. And then it says righteousness goes before him, the person that's been revived and prepares the way for his steps. I have a question for you, friends. What, What problems do you have right now in your life? What issues do you wish you could solve? What direction do you wish you knew? Do you see what this scripture promises you? That righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. That the sovereign God of the whole universe says to you, If you will seek me and you will be revived, then I will show you what to do. I will show you where to go. What an amazing promise. Bless us with goodness seems like an understatement. Water from a spring out of the side of a mountain seems like a small illustration in regards to consideration of the greatness and goodness that God wants to give to those who are revived. So we ask God, like the psalmist of Psalm 85, the sons of Korah, whose forefather was judged For his grievous sin, that they were redeemed by God's grace. God, would you revive us again? Let's pray. God, that is our prayer. I know all of us are at different places spiritually and in our relationship with you, but we pray as a whole that you would revive us again, that whatever it may be in our lives, that hinders us from being who you've called us to be, that you would revive us again. That we would turn from any sin, that we would confess that and repent. That we would get accountability, find boundaries, do whatever it takes to guard our hearts, our minds. And Father, that we might be revived again. So I pray that for those of us that are believers in Jesus, that we might be revived and again. But I also pray this morning, Father, for those who are not yet believers in Jesus, that they might make that commitment today and they'd be filled with your Holy Spirit too and feel a fresh wind that's not revival, but it is bringing new life through the Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.